Good morning, Grace Church, and those online today. Glad you're here. I'm Jonathan Fast. I'm one of the elders, um, and uh, want to welcome some friends that that we'd schedule to have in town. Tim and Chris and Richard, Luke and Lauren are here, and just met uh, Austin Reed is in town for the summer into October. He'll be helping with firefighting in this area. So welcome. Glad to have you guys. Um, and I want to thank the, the worship team and, and uh, the security safety team, the, the AV team, everybody um, here to help everything work together. I've got an empty stool here. You might notice that. And that's an homage to Pastor Harold and, and Marsha. So he, he's having some, sol- some shoulder work done. And um, I just have so much appreciate them for standing in the gap from... Um, almost a year ago, I think June, until uh, uh, the Molesky's uh, arrived, and just their faithfulness. So please keep them in your prayers. Uh, He's got a follow-up appointment here in a a few days. So there's actually a point to the chair. It's not just for Pastor Harold. Um, And also those of you who are excited for the the finale of of the, the teaching on Ruth. Um, sorry you have to wait a week on that. It's been getting a little difficult, though, because we have Boaz, who's like setting the, the bar kind of high. And so now the, the joke in our house is, uh, you know, you're not being very Boazy right now. And that's a lot of fun to measure up to, so <laughs> it's getting uncomfortable there. Um, so Seth read the, the scripture this morning and was thinking about what to, to talk about this morning for the sermon, um, had, had a few different things in mind and was bouncing it off Pastor Matthew, and uh, one of them was this one. And then one of them I said I th- that I considered was the scariest scripture in the Bible, the scariest passage of the scripture in the Bible. That was one of my topics I was thinking about. So I texted that to him, and I waited, and then he texted me back. What is this? You guys with me? <laughs> what is the scariest? Wouldn't you think that? And I didn't, I'm not doing the scariest, but I would say this could be one, could be one of them. Uh, there's, se- there's several in there that, that are very sobering and um, to take seriously. So this one is on um, forgiveness and forgiveness, and the title is A Hard But Simple Way to Change the World. A Hard but still simple way to change the world. And uh, chose this topic because I think it's someone, something every one of us can relate to. Every, every one of us can relate to it on our own lives. And then we know people who are going through these things right now that we can relate to. And so before we get into it, I uh, just want to bow for a word of prayer to get our hearts ready. God, the forgiveness you give us is beyond measure. And I thank you for it. And every day we're reminded that we are unworthy, but we are not of our own. We've been bought with the price, the precious blood of your son, Jesus. And so as we study your, your scriptures this morning, I ask that our hearts would be open and our minds would be open, that there might be relationships that need to be restored and maybe it's with you and maybe it's with a neighbor and maybe it's with a family member 
We pray for Pastor Harold and Marcia, and thank you for their faithfulness, God, and for their continued healing. God, continue to use them, Father, for your kingdom. We hear from you now in Jesus' name, amen. October 3rd, 2003, some guys were playing a baseball game, and the game was, it was close to being over. It was in the eighth inning. There was one out. The score is three to zero, and guy steps up to the plate, and he, he swings the bat, and the ball pops up, goes down the left field line, past third base, kind of toward the outfield. And, you know, the, it's kind of getting toward the stands, and so everybody in the stands did what people in the stands do. When a baseball comes for them, they stood up and started to reach for the ball. In the meantime, the, the left fielder, Moises Alou, was sprinting toward the ball on the edge. And at one just moment in time, everybody went up for the ball. No one caught the ball. The ball fell down into the stands. The play was over. The batter was safe. Foul ball, right? But oh, there's so much more to the story than that. Um, and you could put that first slide up there. So what followed was a firestorm, and it lasted for, for years, including a 30, an ESPN 30 for 30 uh, series um, on, on the subject. What, what transpired next was the, the outfielder, Alou, looked at the stands, was really upset, almost slammed his glove, kind of slammed it against his leg, and got real mad. And then um, people started to boo um, the individual who was closest to the ball, reached for the ball. The next play was a wild pitch. The ball went behind um, the catcher, and the runner that was on second base advanced to third base. Then, the, then a couple plays later, there was a, uh, a ground ball to, short, to shortstop, and the could have been a double play, and he bobbled the ball. Long story short, the Florida Marlins ended up score, scoring eight runs in that inning. So it went from three to zero to eight to three. They won, the, they won the sixth game, and they beat the Cubs in game seven to go on to win the World Series that year. So when we study an illustration like that, it's really important to understand, to understand what's really going on. We, got, we have to look at it from all of the players, all of the characters in the situation. You know, we kind of tend to go to the, whoever the hero is and, or the heroine. That's like, that's me, right? But we've got to really look at it from every side. So what happened as a result of this, this play in this, this game? So the, the Marlins won the world, the, ended up winning the World Series. So different baseball players ended up winning, different millionaires, if you would. The vendors at, at Wrigley Field, instead of the excitement of being there working for the, for the uh, World Series, had to go home after the seventh game. Um, people who printed the apparel and the hats and the shirts for uh, the world champion had to switch it, from, had to make it go to the Florida, Florida Marlins. Um, but then there was, a, there, was a, there was a real firestorm. Um, the rest of the game, the last inning and two-thirds, the, the cameras um, kept, kept panning to the, the character Steve Bartman, the one who reached for the ball. People were booing and throwing debris at him. Someone even dumped beer on him. And um, they had to escort him out of the stadium under security. 
So um, over time, and the, and the whole subject became water cooler conversation for years. I mean, for years it went on. Steve Bartman basically had to go into hiding and to change his phone number. He went home. They had police cars outside to make sure nobody was, was um, going to harm him. And his life was completely turned upside down. And he became an unforgiven scapegoat to a city um, for, and, a, and a fan base for years to come. You might be thinking, well, those were just silly Cubs fans, right? They're crazy. And they had some crazy curse stuff like the, the, the black cat and the curse of the billy goat and stuff. They're just crazy Chicago fans, right? Is that, is that really what happened? Or if we put ourselves in the, in the picture, what would we do? What would we do if we were in the stands? What would we do if we were Cubs fans or the players? Um, and so it's important to think about that. So when we go to, uh, when we go to our scripture today, to Romans, or excuse me, to, we'll get to Romans in a minute, to Matthew chapter 18. As Seth said, um, it's a little context going up to the scripture. So in chapter 18, and there's the, the, the story of, of who's the greatest? You know, they asked Jesus who's the greatest. And Jesus said, don't cause, an, don't cause an offense. Don't be the one to cause offense. Go after lost sheep. And then he gives instructions on how to confront a brother. And it's at this point, Peter asks Jesus um, the question. And he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, I can just imagine Jesus' thought cloud when he asked this question. You know, how many times should I forgive my brother? I, I imagine Jesus saying, like, you know, I'm really glad you asked me that. Um, because he's going to get to a really important point there. But there is, as Seth pointed out, there is, there is almost like, a, like a, a justification he was looking for. He's like, should I forgive? I mean, I'm willing to even go up to seven. Like, I'm, I'm willing to even go there, right? And so there's a kind of a justification in his mind how many times I should forgive. And Jesus says, of course, not seven, but 70 times seven. So probably not the answer that Jesus was looking for, um, but the answer is basically endless mercy, endless forgiveness. So we get into the scripture, and the first, the first point about the scripture is there is a time when accounts will be settled, right? There's, there's an accounting there. In this case, the, the unmerciful servant owed so much money, it's almost unfathomable. Seth's translation said millions of dollars. You can go ahead and put the first slide up there. So it, 10,000 talents, some, some, by some estimations, could be even into the billions of dollars. So I just found this picture. This is a pretty nice house, right? On a pretty nice property. It's got a helicopter, some exotic cars. That guy owed that much money, maybe more, but, but somewhere close to that. And he didn't have the money to pay. And so, you know, you wonder, you wonder how did he even acquire that much debt? You know, how, how could he even do that? Probably had some influence, the ability to borrow money, a lot of time, but he's really in a pickle and the, and the account comes, comes forward. And so the king moves on with business. Okay, well, you can't pay. Into jail you go. 
you and your family, you're all going to jail. That's the way it works, right? And so the, um, so after the king moves on to the business, the, the servant expresses contrition, humility, and the hope for a miraculous mercy. I mean, he is in, he is in a untenable situation there. How is he going to pay that back? And I don't think they had helicopters back then. You know, it's just an illustration. But, but then, the, then the king was human. He was, he was kind. He was moved with compassion, it says. And so he forgives the unmerciful servant all of that, the 10,000 talents, wiped clean. Hallelujah. Thank God. Oh, sermon's over. We can go home. Woo! Right? Great end of the story. But the story's not over. So the servant pivots quickly to a completely different set of standards. And how, how quickly he pivots. So he actually puts his hand on the neck, owing him one pittance of his debt. Of his debt. So he's like, string, give me my money, right? Go to the next slide. <laughs> that camper is worth about, about $15,000, give or take. And so even though we don't know precisely the the, uh, the 100 denarii, denarii and the 10,000 talents, but the proportions are roughly the same. You owe me this much money, and that's what he's strangling the guy for, for that. I mean, it's, it's cool, it's a camper, but I mean, is it really worth that kind of anger, especially given that he had been forgiven so much? So he had the same reaction as the king, put him in jail, the whole family, but he didn't have the follow-up mercy. And so here's our part. People stood up. People weren't silent, or he'd be, he would have rotted in prison. They saw the whole thing, and they were grieved and distressed, uh, says translation, upset. Like, they couldn't let it go. Like, this isn't right. I mean, this guy was forgiven all this money, and he owes that. Now he's in jail, and his family, his life's over. So he didn't have this, the follow-up mercy. So, so here's the question. We'll get into verse 20, 30, uh, 32. So it says, Then his master, after he, had called, after he had called him, said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Now, here's the logic. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Fair question, right? Kind of way we're all thinking that. So now the reckoning comes. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So, and here's the warning. And this is why I said it was a scary passage. So my heavenly father also will do to you, to each of you, if you do not from your heart, from your heart, Forgive brothers of the trespasses. I mean, it's serious business, right? It's kind of the, the heart of, of the gospel. So, a few questions that I want you to be thinking about. What unforgiveness might you harbor in your heart right now towards someone? Are you thinking of somebody? I'm not talking about a relationship that drifted away or there's a disagreement you're working through. I'm talking about a hard, cut-off divorce, if you will. Do you need to ask for forgiveness? 
Maybe you were the one that wronged someone and need to ask for forgiveness. And then the next question, who do you know who struggles with unforgiveness? I bet you know someone who struggles with unforgiveness and they're just harboring, it's just festering. So Rachel, my wife Rachel and I, we, we kind of brainstormed this and you could do the same thing. And we started thinking about people we know, family and relationships and just the, even things in the news where relationships has Relationships have been cut off one from another. And so we, we kind of we went through a list here. One, um, a personal insult. I'm going to read through different things. Um, personal insult, insult toward you or someone you love. And we, we know of somebody who was in a dating relationship and someone made a comment, kind of putting down the person they were dating, and it really hurt and offended the person. And this has gone on for like 15, 17 years. And so now every time there's a function, someone has to stay home. They haven't resolved it. Basic in consideration. I like this one because it's really practical and we probably all have our <laughs> things that we're now, we, we get annoyed with. Loud music, like somebody plays loud music all the time. You ever been like in a dormitory or an apartment? Like how inconsiderate is that? I'm trying to sleep or whatever. And you just get angry and you just get mad at that person. Some of them are easier. Vandalism, a repeated undesirable behavior. One of my favorites, littering. I think littering, littering's like this the most <laughs> inconsiderate thing, like here, pick up my trash world, <laughs> right? But it makes you angry. Someone took something from you, money. Maybe it's an item that was important to you, a person in the wrong kind of relationship. Self-pity or the need to be wronged kind of victimhood, where he just sits there and festers. It's kind of made light in the, in the movie Christmas Story when, when Ralphie gets, his, uh, gets in trouble for using a word that we won't use in church. And he's, <laughs> he's getting his mouth washed out with soap, and then he has his daydream, like we've all done this, right? He's <laughs> this daydream, and he goes home, and he's blind because, you know, he can't see, and family's like, oh, what is it, Ralphie? What did we do? Is this something that we did? And his, it was soap poisoning, and he was, he was blind because of soap poisoning. He let his mind get into this, this whole victimhood thing. Deep hurt from a trusted friend, deep hurt from a trusted friend, family, a colleague, or a mentor. Sometimes those are really hard because it shocks you. Like you have this long relationship with this person, and you, you're like, this person's a soul. This is a pillar in my life, and then the rug's cut out from under you. How do you take it? That trust and all that. Was, that. was that whole relationship a fraud? Unmet expectations for a task, maybe intimacy or in a relationship. Shame. Sometimes it's, it's self-unforgiveness. I could think of another example of someone who made a mistake and it wasn't the worst mistake in the world by any means. But it started this series of leaving groups and going to the next group and this pattern of instead of just saying you know what i messed up i'm sorry it could have just taken the forgiveness and, and it's like now they can't even show themselves in public because there's shame involved and they they're embarrassed about it when all of us could say we've done the same thing right the, the forgiveness is there but they haven't let go of their own shame could be uh it could be anger from being left out or excluded those of you in school or just graduated, you ever felt like that? Felt excluded from a group? 
disappointment. Um, your hard work is unappreciated or the moment is ruined. You've worked really, really hard on something and it went for not, no one ever even gave you any appreciation for it. And I think of like an example of, of a wedding. You know, somebody works for hours and hours on a wedding cake and the, the bride's really excited about the cake and I think the groom might be also, but, uh, but certainly the bride and the family. And then someone's carrying the cake and they're careless or they, they trip and the cake falls. And, and the disappointment and the anger. How could you be so careless? Or maybe, maybe it's an unreturned wedding invitation and it causes anger and this bitterness and this wedge to drive in. There's all kinds of things with disappointment and unappreciation. Maybe, it's, maybe there's anger because you don't agree with the decision. And it may lead to questioning someone's judgment. I mean, we can see that Everywhere we go, right, if, if you have a job, you probably question someone's judgment on a decision made. If you're, a, if you're a kid and you live at home, you probably question some of the decisions your parents make. Can I get an amen, John? Right? In church, what about the pastor? What about the elders? In, um, in a school, what about the administration? What about the school board? In politics, anybody ever disagree? Don't answer. You know where I'm going with that. Scapegoatism. That was the example from Steve Barton, Steve Barton that we talked about. Difference in political and religious beliefs. How can you believe that? You know, sometimes we can't see in our own mind, how could somebody believe this? It just seems, you know, our mind can't even get around it. And then it becomes heated and even elevated to where people aren't able to speak with one another. This is not an all-inclusive list, but the last one I would leave you with is bullying or hurting of a loved one or the innocent. It just makes you mad, doesn't it? It makes your blood boil when you see someone hurt like that or see, see bullying. So these are real deep emotions, but there's a com- there are common threads to all of them. The first one is jealousy or pride. I think, I think you could find any of this list it's going to follow under one of these three. Jealousy or pride. My feelings were hurt. I don't think that was right. Next one is judgmentalism. I don't agree with that. That's wrong. And you can't, can't let it go. And then the final one is lack of faith in God and his sovereignty. That God has it. That he can make good of something even when it seems bad. So how does it manifest itself when you have this anger? What do you do with it? One is um, some bad things that can happen. Justification, mindset, which leads to a hard heart or retaliation. Some people say karma. You ever hear that a lot? That's karma. They got what they deserved. You ever seen all those videos, a YouTube video, where there's like road rage going on, the guy's got the camera, and then the car goes off and hits something, and the guy's like, yeah, karma, and then he hits something. It's just like this endless cycle. It just doesn't stop. Gossip, slander, physical harm, you know, fighting or murder or whatever it is. For the person who is unforgiving, physical and mental health. If you just go, you lay your head down at night and you can't let go and it just eats you up from the inside. You just can't let go of that anger. And it's hurting you. This is the tough one. NPR did a story about this 
in, in a, the last couple of years. It's titled, Parental Alienation, How Parents Use Their Children as Weapons. It's weaponizing family. I have control over this. I'm mad at you. I don't agree with something you've done, so I'm going to cut you off from this. And it's mean and it's cruel. And I think it's one of the most common ones that we see in society, these broken relationships. Time, Time Magazine did, did a story on it. It's called Ghosting, Dust the Stool. There's a person that could be sitting here in our lives, encouraging us, supporting us when we need, and we could be supporting them when they need support. Or we could be celebrating life's events like graduation, like, like a wedding, like a momentous event. But they're not there to celebrate because they're cut off. And it's, it's so sad, and it's ghosting, and there's a person there that isn't a part of it. Statistically, 27% of adults, uh, adult children, 18 and up, 27% have no contact with at least one of their parents. Just shut off. I'm not saying that there's not reason to be angry there. I'm not saying the parents were, didn't do things bad. But when it's cut off, there's no chance for resolution. There's no chance for forgiveness and healing. Another one is, another one how unforgiveness manifests itself is awkwardness. And this is a little sillier one, but you ever been like in a social situation and you saw somebody that things had kind of broken up and then you're like, oh, hey, and you have to put on that real fake, you know, <laughs> hey, how's it going? Can't stand you, you know. It's awkward and it's, it's kind of hypocritical. So the last one, oh, two more, it affects our prayer life. When we have unforgiveness in our heart, God says go get that right before you come pray. We have communion next week, I believe. And what is communion about? Communing. It's about communing with God and one another. And when those relationships are broken, broken off, how can we drink the symbolic blood, and eat the bread when we have that unforgiveness. When the very thing we're celebrating is the cross. God says, go get that right. And then lastly, salvation. I don't think, I don't think Jesus minced words there, did he? So my heavenly Father will also do to you, each of you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. All right, so what does the scripture say besides the passage? I joked with Matthew about this. I was like, I was going to do, a, do a, a, a sermon on unforgiveness, but I just can't find any material for it. And uh, <laughs> that's a joke. Not only is there material when you open up the news or when you think about the people that hopefully you've been thinking about, the scripture is so full of it. So first one, Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Got that one up there. Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 24. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the, counsel of the counselor. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. 
Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's, it's, a, it's a standard put in place. God's given us a, a pathway to keep relationships healed as much as it's up to us. And it's not always up to us. Matthew chapter 7 Verses 1 through 5. This is one of my favorite ones because like everybody quotes this. Well, you'll see what I mean. It says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with what judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look? A plank is your in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. A couple more, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. This is pretty simple right here. For if you forgive men of their trespasses, I'm going to say it real simple, so like, I think the, the beauty of this is the simplicity of it. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I mean, it's, it's pretty, I was going to say black and white, but it's actually red and white in my Bible. But <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Right? Genesis chapter 50. And I'll paraphrase this. Joseph sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, goes to Egypt, gets put in prison for years. He's completely outcast from his family. He's put in charge of the kingdom. He reveals it to his brothers, and they're scared, right? Oh, shoot. It's our brother that we thought was gone. We told our dad that he was, implied that he was killed. And Joseph says, do not be afraid, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about it, in order to bring it about as it is to this day, to save many people alive. See, Joseph, going back to the sovereignty of God, Joseph was able to release that, the hardness of his heart because he trusted God's sovereignty. He knew God had a plan that he couldn't see, and it was bigger. He was able to absorb all of the hurt and, and the insecurity and the pain and the heartache because his trust of God was greater than, than the hurt. Okay. So how can we overcome evil with good? So you heard the, the hundred denarii example. That was the, the house and the mansion and the camper and everything like that. So here's the 10,000 talent example. Okay, so in the book, The Hiding Place, which famously chronicles the life of Corey Timboom and her family uh, from the Netherlands. They were a watchmaking family. They lived in a little skinny, narrow little house in the Netherlands. And um, in 1940, the Nazis invaded. So two years later, after two years of this and getting some rationing cards and different things, the Timboom family began helping Jews, creating the hiding place of the autobiographical title, so they, they had somebody build this room, this kind of fake wall room in the upstairs, and they had a buzzing system to warn if, if any of the Nazis were going to come, 
they could warn them, they could go in there and hide that a ventilation system, and they could keep people from being sent off to concentration camps. At great risk, right? I mean, if you're in a household with your family, it's, you might think, well, I'll be willing to go down for, the, for these people, for the Jews or whoever they're saving. I'll be willing to do it. But you're also putting your own family at risk. That's not, it's not an easy decision. But they grew up reading the Bible around the table every day. And it, the, the love of, of God was in their hearts. So February 28, 1944, there was a knock. That's scary. An informant had told the Nazis about the work of the Ten Boon family. Can you imagine the fear, like going through your Bible? They know what's coming. They know where they're going. Corey and her father, Casper and Sissy Betsy, were, were put in prison where their father died 10 days later. And the later, Corey and her, sissy, her sister, Betsy, were moved to Ravensbrück concentration camp, which is a women's labor camp in Germany. They held worship services with a smuggled Bible. They had literally like pieces of the Bible in a very dark place full of pain and murder and hate and filth and hunger and cold and crowdedness and despair. They had a few pages of God's holy word. For the, whole, for the whole group. They held worship services with a smuggled Bible where many prisoners converted to Christianity. And here's the artist's depiction. You can see them right in the middle of the screen. Everybody gathered around. You can see the emaciated prisoners, but you can't, you can't smell the smell. You can't, you can't feel the lice that kept the guards away so they could have those Bible studies. You can't feel the hunger or feel the cold going through your bones. But there they are, the hope of the world, the word of God. Betsy succumbed to health deterioration and died later that year. Twelve days following, Corey was released. Corey Tinboom was released due to a clerical error. A week later, all the women in her age group were sent to a gas chambers. A week after she was released. That family saved an estimated 800 Jews by their efforts. She spent the remaining years of her life spreading the gospel and the message of forgiveness. So some pragmatic things. Because it's not easy. And I want to I really emphasize, when we kind of went through that list of things, I mean, from murder to inconsideration and everything in between, the reaction we have are real, they're real emotions. Like you can't really control your initial reaction, right? I mean, the more, the more I think we surrender to God, I think the easier it is. But we, we all have our individual bent. Like we, we're wired a certain way. And so these are not easy things. If they're easy things, I don't think we would need all these passages. So I'm just going to give you a few, a few things to go on. The first thing I want to say is, to be clear, we're talking about forgiveness. We're not talking about just pawning this off on God. I had a conversation recently. This is funny because I was going through my notes and somebody asked me about it. And they're like, well, but God just, God just forgives them, right? Like, that's, that's the whole point. We don't. It's almost like they didn't understand. Like, no, it's in the, in the Matthew 18 passage, it says it's got to be from our heart. How do you do that? So the real emotions and their serious business. So I'm going to go through some, some really practical things. 
I'm sure Pastor George could add, where are you, Pastor George? He's somewhere, but you could probably add, um, you know, hundreds of things. But here's some practical ones. Number one, don't gossip. Don't, don't talk bad about that person without working it out with them. Don't undervalue their emotions or your emotions because they're real. Even if it seems petty to you, it doesn't seem petty to you, to them, because they're wired that way. And the joke in our family is like, I'm the emotional one in our family. My wife, we, te- we tease each other about that. But sometimes I react to things differently than she reacts to them, and she reacts to things differently than I react to them. It's hard. It's very hard. Notice the title, A Hard But Simple Way. Like, forgiveness is pretty simple, but it's not easy to get there. You have to lay your heart out there, and you have to go against every fiber of your flesh. You will almost certainly have to lead. People shy away from humble, contrite, heartfelt confrontation. It's not easy. You don't know if that person's going to mock you, reject you, hold a bigger grudge against you. You've probably had it happen to you. But somebody has to lead. Someone has to initiate it. And it's got to be you. And I say that to me. I mean, it's got to be us. Because most people won't do it. I'd say 95% of people would shy away from that. Pray. Pray for them. Pray with where it says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you, spitefully use you. Pray, pray for them that God would soften your heart to them. You don't have to go from zero to forgiveness like in an instant. You probably can't. But if you're praying for them and you're looking at them as a human being, it certainly gets easier. Assume the best of them. I think this is really, really important. If I go to someone, um, I'll just, wherever it is, I've got to assume the best of them. I've got to assume that they didn't slight me on purpose, that they didn't do it on purpose, because if I don't assume that, we're not going to get anywhere. I have to assume it was an oversight. And I would hope they assume the best of me. I, I, I try not to ever let anyone... If somebody says, well, they put a, an adjective on it, like, well, you don't care or whatever. I stop him right there. I go, I'm, you're not in my head and I'm not in your head. We're not going to talk who cares or who doesn't care. Let's talk about the issues that happen. And maybe we can talk about how they feel about it. But can't, can't judge me on, how, on why I did it. And I can't judge you because we don't know each other's mind. Avoid speaking in absolutes. You never do this or you always do that. I mean, it's just poison. It poisons the relationship. Deal with the the issue at hand. Try not to ever communicate when you're fatigued, tired, um, if you're under a lot of stress, and then try to avoid email and text whenever you can. Um, Resolving problems via text or maybe in the comments after a news article has almost a 0% success rate. Have you ever ever read a story like you read into the comments and like, Someone's like, you're a piece of trash. And they're like, oh, yeah, I, I see the, lo- the light of your ways now. Thank you for correcting me. Like, it never works that way. <laughs> it, what works is, is, is prayer, humility, face-to-face conversation, good faith efforts. Um, you got to listen. you got to hear them out all the way without interrupting. One of my good buddies um, back from my college days, guy loves the Lord, walked to like a knife's edge in his, in his marriage, was almost into a, an adulterous relationship. By the grace of God, God saved him from it. And he, what happened was, he's in the ministry. 
and he doesn't mind if I share the story. He, it's part of his testimony. He's in the ministry. He, he was about to have this affair. It started as like an online emotional thing. They're about to go through with it, and then the woman said, you're so-and-so. Don't you work at this church? And, and she knew his wife, and then she told his wife. That's uncomfortable. It took many months to work through that, deep counseling. But it's part of their testimony now. And his wife was able to forgive, forgive him. And when they, when they went to counseling, one of the things they taught him was, when you're going in a really deep emotional um, work to forgive, you've got to just listen to that person, letting everything out. And then the very end, when they're done saying everything they have to say, say, yeah, but, no, don't say that. Thank you. Just say thank you. Thank you for communicating how you feel. Um, I, think, I think I need to attribute this one to Ron. You either listen to, re, to respond or you listen to understand. And then Diana gave me this one. Diane gave me this one. Unforgiveness controls the person who doesn't forgive. It's a condition of salvation. Maybe you can't forgive, but you can surrender to God. And in doing so, Fill the empty chair. So some, some good news, some good conclusions. Um, we'll go to Steve, Barton for, Steve Bartman first, our, our 100 denarii example. Like, it's a baseball game. Like, it's important. These guys want to win the World Series. The fans hadn't won a World Series for 100 years or whatever it was. I mean, it mattered to them. The funny thing about that is, Sometimes sports are way more than just what's going on on the field or the pitch or the court. There's like family connections that happen. Some of you guys have watched generations of sports with your, with your family, and so you connect that sport with good memories from your family. I, I, I know my mother-in-law is like that. I know I'm like that. I know many of you are like that. So I don't want to blow it off, but it was just a baseball game. I mean, Right? I mean, the guy still made millions of dollars. So in 2016, the Cubs won the World Series, finally. 13 years Steve Bartman endured this. 13 years. He can't even go out to a restaurant probably. Oh, Steve Bartman. Can you imagine? Got to be, be careful we're not too critical because we're the fans, right? If we're honest, we're the fans. We're the players. We're him. We have to put ourselves in all those positions. Bartman received a championship ring from Cubs owner Tom Ricketts and the Ricketts family as a special gift on July 31st, 2017. The Cubs said in a statement, we hope this provides closure on an unfortunate chapter of the story that has perpetuated throughout our quest to win a long-awaited World Series. While no gesture can fully lift the public burden he has endured for more than a decade, we felt an important Steve knows he has been and continues to be fully embraced by this organization after all, he has sacrificed. We are proud to recognize Steve Bartman with this gift today. But the story's not over. A great, great day forgave Steve. And actually, the players and the, the organization did a really good job of that. What about Steve, though? And he's endured this for 13 years. I, I love people like this. I mean, these are, these are people that you don't see maybe out in front, but they're the salt of, of the earth people in the world. Steve Bartman, after all this, the grace that he showed, it, it, it's, it's just off the charts, admir admiration for him. 
Although I do not consider myself worthy of such an honor um, of the official Chicago Club's 2016 World Series championship ring. I'm sure he had somebody help him structure this, by the way, <laughs> the wording. But I am fully, I'm fully aware of the historical significance and appreciate the symbolism the ring represents on multiple levels. My family and I will cherish it for generations. Most meaningful is the genuine outreach from the Ricketts family on behalf of the Cubs organization and fans signifying to me that I am welcomed back to the Cubs family and have their support going forward. I am relieved and hopeful that the saga of the 2003 foul ball is finally over. Redemption. Corey Ten Boom. You know, she didn't, she didn't leave and her, her, her dad had died and then her, her, her sister had died and then everybody she knew in the concentration camp died. She didn't go write a book about atheism. She had reason to be as angry as anybody. She spent her life teaching the gospel and the power of God's forgiveness. My boys, we were in, uh, on the way to, um, we were visiting my mom in California a couple of years ago. And I told them before we were going to go play miniature golf, we're going to go by a gravesite. They got real excited. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Skip the golf. We had listened to the, the Hiding Place on a trip out, I think the year before, uh, to see my mom on audiobook. So they knew this story. This is Southern California's thousands and thousands, maybe 10,000 graves. I don't know. Corey Ten Booms is the most visited or the second most visited in the entire cemetery. It wasn't because she wrote a great song or was in a really great movie or whatever. She taught forgiveness. She taught the gospel. And then behind me hangs on the wall the cross. And here's the key. Our sin is greater, and he paid for it. Our sin, the thing that scares me about sin is it's not just that we know what we did that's wrong. Like, we all know that, right? I could point to any one of you and be like, uh, there's some stuff that you don't know about, Right? You should go like this or I'll start pointing at you. No, I'm just... The thing that scares me about sin is the things that we don't do that we should do. That's the sin of omission. There's sins of commission, like don't slander somebody. But there's sins of omission. There's things that we should be doing that we're not doing. There's ways we should be serving that we're not serving. It's on, on and on and on. Our sin is greater than we realize. But he paid for it. It's done. It's paid for. We just have to receive it. Otherwise, what is the point of hosting a Bible study in a concentration camp barrack room to overworked, dying women, flea-infested, hungry, filthy situation? If the Word of God is not the light of the world, why even have the Bible study? Why not just give in to despair? Here's... Years later, Corey Ten Boom was, was on a speaking tour. Someone approached her. And it was a man. And he went up to her and he says, don't you recognize me? And it took her a minute, and then she did. It was one of the guards from Ravensbrook who had tortured her sister and put him through hell on earth. And she couldn't forgive him. She's like, God, I can't. She's like praying instantly, right? You're in that moment. She said, I can't, I can't forgive him. 
But, but forgiveness is not a feeling. It's an act of obedience. And she prayed that God would work through her. She reached out her hand, and when she did, she felt the love of God go out of her hand. He's a new creature in Christ. He was the worst of the worst. A Nazi prison guard in a concentration camp. But she felt the love of God go out and love him. Maybe you can't do it. Maybe it's impossible that God can. So here's your go-do. All right, this is the exciting part. This is going to be hard. That thing or that person that you thought about at the beginning, you, you probably need to address it. In fact, you do need to address it. If you, as much as it's up to you. Or maybe you need to ask, ask for forgiveness. Or maybe you need to encourage somebody to forgive somebody. And maybe that's what, you, that's what your role is. Like the other servants who said, uh-uh, this isn't right. Maybe your job as a believer is to shed light on the situation and encourage them for all the reasons to forgive. That simple act of submission and obedience can change the world. And it could fill the empty chair.